Greetings, salutations, and uh, warm and kind regards from uh, Life of Brian, dot, 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 Mannix, that is. Here he is, Brian Mannix from the penthouse of the Gold Coast. No, actually, Kevin, oh. I'm from um, Dabble's Backyard in Melbourne, actually, today. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's just not show busy enough, sorry. And now he's live from Daryl's Backyard in Melbourne. Yeah, it's good. I'm just near the veggie patch. It's fantastic. Um, <laughs> there would be some actually, people who would suggest you are the veggie patch, Brian. <laughs> well, that's true. Um, but I, I've done well, actually, because um, I came down on Friday. Mm. On Saturday, it was beautiful here. It was about yes. 21, 22 degrees. Yes. And up in Queensland, it was piss and rain. So I just seem to be following the sun, and I'm quite happy about that. Are you making some suggestion where the sunshine comes from? Oh, I think it just follows me around, Kev. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, <laughs> fair enough. Hey, uh, we've uh, we've set a new uh, worldwide benchmark, I reckon. I, I reckon for the first time ever, the pre-match entertainment at a football game in this country rivaled the, the NFL's halftime shows. I reckon we, we kicked an enormous goal with Robbie Williams. Yes, we did. Um, he's been the best we've ever had, and... For the first time ever, I think, the AFL pre-game entertainment was better than the NRLs. Um, I was watching Barnsley last night and, oh, he scared me. He was just screaming and he's, I thought his eyes were going to pop out of his head. And I thought, gee, we maybe put some sunglasses on or something, Jimmy, because there's little kids watching and they're going to be frightened. Now, that's Dr. Um, Jim Barnes to you, incidentally. Oh, why is he Dr. Jim Barnes? He, in the last fortnight, it was about 10 days ago, I think, got an honorary doctorate from the University of South Australia. For what? He got an honorary doctorate from the University of South Australia. I'm not sure what it's for, but he got to dress up in the robes with the funny hat and the whole deal and uh, and make a speech, and uh, he's now, you know, an honorary Dr. James Barnes. Well, I hope he pays back his student loan. Um, <laughs> I don't think, that was, I don't think that was part of the. Uh, don't think that was part of the deal. But yes, uh, in I'll the, tell you what. All the finery. after seeing after seeing him perform last night, you wouldn't want to go to see him as the doctor. <laughs> you'd walk in and he'd go, "What's that the biggest problem?" <laughs> he goes, "I've got a sore throat." Well, oh no, Jesus. Uh, yes. yeah, not too good. No. But you know. At the end of the – there was a shit game of uh, NRL. There was. Um, it was, as you said, probably even a little bit worse than the AFL game, which was also a shit game. But what I noticed at the end of the show, mm-hmm. uh, at the end of the thing, the players, the winners are there, and then suddenly one of the guys gets his little toddler baby out of the crowd and he's got the baby there and that's fine and it's all a very nice family moment. But then – the other players see this, so they wander into the crowd, grab some random babies and bring all these babies. They're not even their own kids. Just bring them out onto the field. It looked like a fairly good crash out there. I was going to say the Penrith crash was holding a meeting at uh, the stadium and, uh, and a rugby league game broke out in the middle of it. Well, you know, the thing was, it looks like, oh, he's got his daughter. They're not. They just go up to random people in the crowd and say, oh, I'm taking your baby from you. You know, they're all just trying to be cool. Oh, yeah, I've got a baby. Bullshit. A panther's taken my baby. baby. A panther's taken my baby. A panther's taken my baby, exactly. (laughs) Um, And, I, you know, look, I suppose it's a great moment for them, but 
it really is, is a, it's an 18 month year old really going to appreciate the value of, oh, dad just won the NRL. I don't think so. Maybe if they show a video when he's 15, he might get the yeah. gist of it. But yeah, so you were part of it, and that's nice when you're 15. But it, for what happened last night, no, absolutely no no connection whatsoever. <laughs> well, I saw one, of the, one little girl, and she's out there, and she's just cracking the shits. <laughs> and going, dad, dad, dad. Yeah, I saw and, it's like, <laughs> and I thought, well, you know, maybe mum should just hang on to her and let dad enjoy the moment. Yeah. And um, and then there was some other little girl out there and she didn't give a flying rat's ass about the whole thing. <laughs> She's just there dancing, showing everybody all her tricks. And I thought, oh, well, you know, but uh, it was a bit, I don't know, it just seemed a bit weird. It was a big sporting event and it turned into, you know, a Children's show. Yeah, anyway. well, it was. It was. It was like the Wiggles had all put uh, Penrith jumpers on. But anyway, uh, yeah. now we uh, we got a great, a cracking little show here. One of your very good friends uh, who works with you on the Absolutely 80s show, amongst other things. But uh, in his own right, is a, a star of the Australian music industry. Sean Kelly's on the show this week. He's a member of the Australian Aria Hall of Fame, and oh, uh, yes. yeah, I'm not. And uh, in fact, I've got a better chance. I've got a better chance of winning a Logie than a bloody Aria award. The music industry just doesn't like me, I tell you. And I still haven't got my Order of Australia medal. And he's Barnsley with the doctorate. Get stuffed. <laughs> you know, Barnsley's got an Order of Australia medal and a doctorate. Oh, Dr. Jimmy Barnes. Jesus. <laughs> it's just not fair, Kev. It's just not fair. Well, it's okay because he's, uh, he's uh, a proctologist and he's practising and you're his first patient, so good luck with that. <laughs> You might hands you, up in the air. Yeah, well, you you might uh, you might get your Aria Award and your uh, your Logie. Uh, you might get them all uh, presented to you at once. Uh, I'd rather not have them presented to that part of my life. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so Sean Kelly's uh, with us, and we're also going to revisit uh, Ronnie Charles a little bit more. Of Ronnie, uh, this time talking about uh, an amazing experience he had with the London Symphony Orchestra, uh, with Pete Townsend, with Roger Daltrey, with David Essex. It's a it's a great little story. He said he, well, he said it was the best orgy he'd ever been to. <laughs> and, um, I see no reason to doubt him, Kev. Yeah, and they had Barnsley as the pre-match entertainment. It was just spectacular. People were walking out smiling with their ears bleeding. It was fantastic. Uh, and, uh, of course, as always, thanks to our very good friends at Murcotts. Uh, now, just two words, gift certificate. Gift certificate. Christmas is coming up. The people you know are shit drivers. Don't tell them that because they don't like it. Yep. So you're just helping them to improve their driving. A gift certificate from Murcotts would be the perfect present to give someone who's graduating high school or a university or whatever at this stage, give get them get them driving well from the start. Not not ten years or twenty years into their driving uh, experience, get them from the very start. So it's a good graduation yeah. gift. I, I think a, a gift certificate would also be good for somebody who's recently received a doctorate for doing fuck all. <laughs> One three hundred five 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 seven six. That's the number at Murcotts. It's murcotts.edu.au. We'll be back with more uh, from uh, Dr. Manick shortly. But uh, let's get to Sean Kelly in the meantime. All right. Hey Brian. Hey Sean. How are you, mate? Good, baby. That's good. So you're well. You're happy, Sean. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wouldn't be dead for quits. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> You haven't soiled yourself. It's a nice day. The sun's shining, so you know, we're all we're all good in the uh, in the universe. Yeah. Righto, Manix, go on. Ask Sean a question. 
Oh, I will. In between puffing cigarettes. And here's one that I don't know the answer to. Um, But, okay, so you're a kid doing, you know, kid stuff and then suddenly you decide you want to get into music. What made you decide you want to get into music? Mm. Well, I had a kind of, um, had lived in an, a world of kind of pop music ambience when I was growing up because the old man used to have top 40 radio going in the car and at home. Um, so I was, you know, and plus they were into like classical music as well and show tunes. So I just grew up listening to all that. Plus, you know, being a kind of Irish Catholic background, there was, um, cousins and aunts and uncles and they all played piano and sang and so I was kind of uh, exposed to it at a very early age and I think after a while it just kind of got to me and I thought you know this is um, I love music I I love the effect it has on me Uh, maybe I could actually be a musician and I mean I remember thinking stuff like that you know as I was sort of reaching adolescence and uh, well um, oh shit before you change the subject the fact is I started I had piano lessons as a little kid and then I uh, switched to uh, guitar when I was about 12 or 13 and started having lessons and and that was the start of my demise when, when were the drum when were the drums coming because weren't you a drummer as a kid too well, yes. Um, before I, <laughs> I actually switched to guitar and having lessons after um, playing drums, but just you know on ice cream tins and ironing boards. Uh, I had some proper sticks and read the you know on the equivalent of YouTube, which would have been a, a magazine or something. Uh, you know how to hold the sticks. So I used to play along to. Um, pop music at home, like I, I remember having a, the single Burning Love by Elvis Presley, and it's got some great sort of tom-tom parts that I used to be able to bang out on the ironing board. <laughs> <laughs> it does have some good uh, tom-tom parts that um, mm. Elvis keeps speeding it up. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, okay, so you're playing guitar now. You're 13, you're playing guitar. When do you form a band? And how do you form a band? Fortunately, I was uh, with some highly motivated other 12 and 13-year-old musicians. My friend <laughs> Colin, I think, hired the local uh, the local hall at the local sports oval and we lugged our amps and things down there and started, I, you know, was, no one ever really heard us, but uh, we started playing, you know, uh, uh, my friend Ian, Ian McFarlane, the music journalist was a drummer at the age of about 12 or 13 and Colin McGlinchey, uh, a.k.a. James Freud, was, you know, he had a bass when I first met him, uh, second year, second or third year of high school. Um, so, yeah, we just immediately started playing stuff, you know, like really kind of a bit of some of the, some cool stuff like some David Bowie um, like Gene Genie, where you could play that as soon as someone yeah. showed you an E chord or something. Uh, plus, we played some, I don't know, probably some wings. 
Backman Turner Overdrive, uh, Bad Company. And Chuck Berry? Yeah, and of course some Chuck Berry, but maybe via the Beatles. I remember doing a version of Bad Boy. Um, You know, puts you tax on teacher's chair, puts you in gum in little girl's hair. Now, Junior, behave yourself. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so just... Just the usual trajectory, I suppose. Were you writing anything then? Like, did you have a book with, you know, lyrics and stuff that you were writing at that stage or not? Yeah. I don't know if I had anything that memorable or extraordinary or remarkable to contribute to the bands at that stage. But um, we're certainly, uh, I mean, one of the main reasons I switched to guitar was I wanted to write my own tunes. I mean, try writing a song on the drums. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's not going to work too well, is it? <laughs> no. Somehow like Dance with the Devil by Cozy Powell. Oh, yeah, I remember Cozy Powell. I think that's the only song ever written <laughs> by a drummer. <laughs> I presume it's a drum solo. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. You'll have to get your researchers onto that one. You left home early, didn't you? And then did you? When were you busking and stuff in Kings Cross? When you you were a teenager when you were doing that, weren't you? Were you still living at home then, or had you left home? No, I actually left home at a stupidly at a very young age, fifteen, and there was uh, like budget accommodation in St Kilda that was advertised regularly in the Herald or something. Uh, I think it was like 30 bucks a week or something. But you had to be 16. I don't know, maybe it's for people between the age of 16 and 30. So I remember showing up at the Launceston Hotel in St Kilda Road, just down near the junction there, and saying to the guy, Nigel, uh, I'll be 16 in like two weeks. Can I have a room, please? Uh, and I already had my acoustic guitar and just started hanging out with other musicians that did things like busk and myself and Joseph Clark actually hitchhiked to Sydney and spent some time up there busking around King's Cross and Paddy's Market playing uh, uh, Hendrix, Dylan, Bowie, uh, Lou Reed and we did quite well actually. So, Sean, I don't want to pry and be be too, uh, you know. But was was home life not not something that was good? Yeah, no, it's it's sort of weird, you know. At the age of what fifteen or something, I'd been um, really getting into music, and you know, I, was, I just lived with a a very sort of uh, how can I put it, a very Catholic conservative family. I was lucky because, you know, I was, I think, very much loved and nurtured and stuff, but I just didn't really fit into the mould, you know. Um, becoming an atheist at, a, at the age of 14 or something, uh, suddenly I was at odds with the whole culture. And plus there was a certain uh, opposition to me be- be- becoming a musician or an, or an artiste or a cre- creative type. I mean... Naturally, um, doctor or lawyer would have been a more sensible choice. But, you know, I don't want to disparage musicians and artists and creative types because, you know, they do have some merit. I mean, most people don't really like music, but there are some people out there that do appreciate it. Yeah. 
So you're up in Sydney. No, I'm joking. Of course, people <laughs> love music, you know. <laughs> but it's occasionally you do hear people go, oh, no, nah, nah, I'm not really into music. Yeah, because yeah, they don't understand it. It's not a real job and it doesn't kind of fit the, you know, the, <laughs> doesn't fit the narrative, exactly. they say, these days. So yeah. when do you go punk and form the Teenage Radio Stars? How's that happen? Well, there is a bit of an, a narrative arc here. After I returned from Sydney on one of those busking trips, I ended up uh, just hanging out with Freudy again, James Freud, and he actually had been, you know, reading the NME and God knows what else and was just right into, you know, the kind of punk explosion that was happening around the world. He just basically enlisted me to be the guitarist in his punk band, The Spread. And, uh, yeah, that's how I did it, basically. can thank James Freud for uh, introducing me to uh, punk rock. And, you know, from there we got offered various record deals. And so, yeah, I guess on occasion I was in the right place at the right time. Your first record was on that Lethal Weapons punk thing that Barry L put together, isn't it? Was it with I Want to Be Your Baby? Yeah. Huh. Yeah, that, that's your first record, isn't it? Yeah, I think it was our first time in a recording studio. Uh, yeah, so I don't know what I can say about that other than that it was also the beginning of years of ridicule and accusations of selling out and stuff. I mean, I was working with some other people around that time and just signing to suicide was considered to be a bit of a a sellout and then we were accused of ripping off someone else's song. I won't go into that, but uh, I can thank Barry Earl and James Freud for that ignominy. Yeah, so that sort of opened a few doors. The suicide records thing was a bit short-lived, but I did get to sort of tour Australia with the boys next door and the negatives. Jab. And I think Jab were on the bill as well. <laughs> yeah, I remember seeing Jab at Torquay Surf Club and oh, the surfies didn't know what to make of them. They were <laughs> punk rock band and he's up on stage singing, uh, got her in the corner. Oh, she wanted to dance. So got her in the corner. We ripped off her pants and he's spitting on the floor and Oh, the surfies were just in such shock at this band. <laughs> but uh, I thought they were really funny. I thought they were good. Um, mm. So Teenage Radio Stars, you got that. And then you leave Teenage Radio Stars. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Actually, as, I was driving home from the gig, from a gig with Radio Stars. I mean, we did, we actually did lots of shows, outdoor right. concerts, pubs, uh, a couple of uh Rose Tattoo Supports, which was interesting back in those days. Um, but, no, actually the drummer was giving me, giving me a ride home and informed me that I was about to be fired <laughs> by, by James and Barry. So I just uh, kind of preempted it and um, resigned before they had a chance to fire me. And then they got some shredding kind of rock musician in the band to replace me and it was the start of James's kind of self-obsessed uh, solo stuff. Baby, 
Well, breaking silence, that's essentially the teenage radio stars, but he renamed it Berlin. Is that right? Uh, yeah, I think he might have had a few lineup changes before he got to the to that right. recording. I think there was there was first a hybrid of the punk band without me, and then he I think he found those guys, Roger Mason and the gang. I think they were all based at Cheltenham or Mentone or something, doing covers. So you've um, quit the teenage radio stars. So what do you do now? Go and form your own band. The models? Is that when the models started? Yeah. Yeah, it's like within 24 hours. Uh, uh, we had um, Pierre Sutcliffe was the very first bass player um, with – Oh, was it with Teenage Radio Stars? No, Pierre had come in to replace someone else in the punk band before I actually quit. So I knew Pierre, and by the time I quit TRS, Pierre had joined Jab, who were just disbanding at the same time that I had left TRS, and we just ran into each other in a, a nightclub. And just thought, yeah, bugger it, let's just start something new. And and Johnny and Ash were um, also keen to get into it. So it was sort of, it was almost like me joining a, a later version of Jab, but not really, I think. I think it was kind of um, Pierre's idea to call the band Models. And uh, yeah, we just sort of, rehearsed for about six months during 1978 and then just started gigging towards the end of 78. Are you writing your own just, songs at this point? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, actually, and plus I was this, I hadn't actually been the singer in a band until this point. I was just the guitarist in the punk band. And um, so it was kind of a bit of a, Baptism of Fire, just suddenly being the lead singer in a groovy new wave band. But um, were you comfortable with that? Yeah, I think I was pretty comfortable. I mean, it's um, I'd always been a singer, you know, sang in choirs all my life at various schools and um, loved music, and but I just hadn't been a singer in a band before, so I uh, just kind of uh, you know. The, old, the expression fake it till you make it comes to mind because I bet it's a lot of just kind of screaming my head off, hoping it sounded half decent, uh, that sort of thing. Well, you've got a really unique voice. You know, people say Frank Sinatra is a great singer because he invented a new style of singing and, you know, I say, well, so is Lou Reed. He invented a new style of singing. But you invented sort of like your own style of singing, which in excess kind of... Uh, honor in um, like an animal. What song was that? Was theirs? They were going to get. They were going to get you to do it, weren't they? Yeah, that's right. I send a message from the swing. Yeah, I was, right. Was actually spending a bit of time with in excess at that time, and um, I think I'd already worked with Nick Lornay, who was their producer. So Nick and Michael. Um, were going to get me to come in and sing a song, but I think they liked the way Michael copied me on that one line, like an animal. Yeah. Uh, 
I do feel a connection there because that song has got some of the some of the lyrics actually uh, helped Michael. Oh, I don't really? think we didn't sit down and aim to write a song or anything, but we talked about well, I guess you know just some of the sentiments expressed in those lyrics. And uh, right. so yeah, I feel a connection there. Who were your influences as, as a singer, though? Like, what sort of singers were you listening to to sort of think, yeah, I want to sort of sound like him, or or did you just do your own thing? Yeah, look, I, I really loved lots of different singers. Like, I was by the time I was uh, in a, you know, trying to be the singer of models, there was just so much great stuff around coming from the states and uh, Europe. But I mean, I think I consciously was able to. Um, how can I put it? I, you know, I loved singers like Jerry Humphreys from The Loved Ones, mm. Noddy Holder from Slade. Yeah, beauty. People that just basically, um, I mean, to a certain extent, Susie Quattro would do it a bit as well. That, but you're just, you know, just screaming your head off, basically, but in tune so that it's, um, uh, yeah, I just like that. I mean, uh, what's that? The Loved Ones, uh, Ever yeah. Loving Man by oh, The Loved yeah. Ones. Good song. Yeah, where Jerry Humphreys goes from like a baritone to a screaming falsetto or something, and I sort of really dug that. And I think you, you can probably hear that influence in some of the some of the model stuff. Yeah, yeah. That's so, a, it's a really interesting vocal that Ever Loving Man. Really interesting vocal. Yeah. Forget everything. Oh, everything about you. So the models are chugging along now. You're doing all, lots of gigs and stuff. When do the record companies start sniffing around? Or are you doing independent records or what's happening with the models at this point? We actually had quite a, an impressive live following. We were already touring to Sydney and Adelaide and Brisbane, Perth regularly. You know, people were trying to sign us. EMI were interested. Alberts were interested. You know, we did some demos up at Alberts in Sydney, uh, met Harry and George, and um, unfortunately they didn't sign us because we would have jumped if they'd said, do you want to be on Alberts with ACDC and JPY, etc." But that was fun, doing demos for them, working at Alberts in the old King Street studios. Did they produce the demos or not? No, they didn't. It was one of their... Underlings, I think we had Les Karski, who I'd worked with. Oh, actually, oh god, that is a very good question. My guitar teacher was an in-house producer there as well, Ian Miller, but I don't think he produced it. I think it might have been Marco Pitts. Marco Pitts. No, I didn't actually meet Mark back then. I think it was Les Karski who was uh, who actually produced the TRS stuff for Suicide. For Suicide Records, he was the guitarist in a band called Supercharge. Oh, yeah, the great band oh, yeah. that had a hit. Hey, the, the, Get Up and Dance. That's it, yeah. Yeah, was it a yeah, well, bass player or something in that? 
Yeah. And Les was a guitarist, and he Les moved to Australia and became a an in house producer at Alberts for a while. Yeah. So you eventually signed with Mushroom, yeah? That's right. I think so. Yeah. I mean, as I said, there was a bit of interest from a you know more than one record company. We actually started recording that first. Models album, Alpha Bravo, Charlie Delta, before we had a deal with anyone, we just had like an arrangement with the, with Richmond recorders where we could go in after hours and just record merrily away. In the end, uh, Mushroom picked up the tab for those sessions and yeah, we started a long association with the old Mushroom Records. It was um, an unusual sort of deal because you guys didn't want to put out a single and you didn't for years. Yeah. What was, what was the thoughts about that? That is a very good question. I, oh, <laughs> I nobody else of. was doing it. Nobody else was doing it. Everybody else was putting out a single. I, I think, but, but the model said, no, we put out singles. I don't know. It might have been like a, like a kind of a, a response to um, the like we just had haters every step of the way. People, you know, like there's sort of some good things happened to the band. You know, like we were quite popular and we'd fill rooms and um, and we we're having a great time. But we we're constantly being ridiculed and criticised by you know the local press and other musicians. And I think that might have been our way of trying to be uh, cool, you know, like we're not like a pop band, like the Bay City Rollers or yeah. that's not a very good example. <laughs> or um, the all right, or like the Uncanny X-Men who are just churning out <laughs> singles, brilliant singles. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> no, we, we just sort of wanted our, to present ourselves as being a little bit alternative, I guess. Uh, oh. You know, but typically with these sort of things, you know, as soon as we had a chance to release a single in, in London, of course we did it. There was no kind of pretensions there. Uh, the band's first single over there was Local and or General, which I don't think was, oh yeah, it might have been, it might have been our first single here as well. Mm. I thought Big um, Love was your first single here or Kiss or something, but anyway. No, I think it was local and or general. You'll find that there there is somewhere a seven inch version of that, which is a pretty oh jeez, I don't know. Maybe I chose that one because as a single, because eventually we got to that stage, Brian. You'd know it where you've recorded an album and everyone's going, "All right, what's the single going to be?" And um, I, after several years, I worked out that I did not have a clue because I would always pick something that no one else in the band or the record company liked. As I said, I think that's maybe how come Local and or General became a single. It must have been my idea. Because it's not a single. It's not a single, but it was a single. <laughs> yeah. Well it, well, it did well, didn't it? Where, where did that chart do? That went pretty well on the chart, didn't it? Not because I remember hearing it everywhere. Oh, I don't know. 1981. Did they have charts in 1981? It's hard to know. Uh, it was a long time oh. ago. Yeah, they did. Yeah, they did. <laughs> they did. 
Now, we've got plenty more from Sean. Uh, we've only really got to the uh, the models. Uh, so we've got the, the, the models uh, with James Freud. We've got absent friends to talk about. We've got uh, absolutely 80s to talk about and shenanigans on the road with your good self, and, Brian. And and that orgy with uh, Pete Townsend and Ronnie <laughs> Charles. Don't forget about that. Yes. Talk about that. Is, is Sean a wild man on the road or is he, you know, a, a, a green tea and an iced vovo in the corner of the green room? He's, he's a gentleman. He's a... One of the nicest blokes you'd ever meet. He just has empathy for everybody and um, he's unpretentious. Um, he's everything that I'm not, Kev. <laughs> uh, well, uh, he'll be on the, the next episode with part two of the uh, the Sean Kelly interview. Uh, so that's coming up. But now we've got, uh, as we mentioned, uh, Ronnie Charles had uh, this this amazing uh, career and time in uh, in the UK where he got to do all sorts of weird and wonderful things. One of them was uh, performing uh, with uh, producer Lou Reisner and his uh, his version of Tommy, and also uh, recording some uh, some amazing stuff, which we're going to play at the end of this. But let's uh, let's delve back into our, our chat with Ronnie Charles and this amazing experience he had in the UK. For those of you. Uh you know, a little bit concerned about what Kev's actually talking about. UK stands for United Kingdom, meaning England and Ireland and Scotland and uh, probably Wales. Well, you'd know Just Lord like, Brian of the Silves, the whatever the it is. Land? Yes, Lord Brian of Sealand. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and I'm not an honorary lord. I paid to be a lord, so, you know, it's a difference. <laughs> I'll let it go, Brian. God. It's an an honorary doctorate. All he got was a funny little hat and some robes. It's not going to do anything for him. Let it go, man. You just see, if if he opens up a practice in Glenelg... Then you know you know things have gone too far. There'll be trouble. All right, let's 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 leave uh, leave the surgery there and uh, move on to uh, to Ronnie Charles. Lou was doing a staging of Tommy at uh, the Rainbow with the London Symphony, with Roger Daltrey and a cast of thousands with you know, David Essex and John Pertwee, the Doctor Who at the time, and all these different characters. Uh, Richie Havens could only do one night. And he did a track called Eyesight to the Blind in Tommy on the London Symphony recording. And Lou just thought my voice would be perfect for that, to fill in for the night he couldn't do, which I did, which was a very uh, uh, exciting thing for me to do at the time. Um, Standing there in front of the LSO and in in the company of Roger Daltrey, et cetera, was uh, something that was pretty special. But Lou then was involved in with Pete Townsend in trying to get Eric Clapton rehabilitated after Derek and the Dominoes. This is before Eric did 461. And Pete Townsend put together a back line just a few weeks after that at the Rainbow Theatre. It was basically to get fire Eric up back up, you know, into getting playing again. And uh, that was his success. And Lou, out of that, got this idea. He rang me up and said, Ronnie, I've got this idea to do. I can hear Leela with the orchestra going. I can hear that riff. I can hear that riff. And you're, you're the person to sing it, and we've got the blessing of Eric. So 
that's how my recording of Lo- with the London Symphony Orchestra doing Layla and the Freeze Wishing Well. That was the single we did. And then Lou took off. This is a long story short, but Lou took off after that. Um, the Atlas thing didn't work. The single didn't get played by the BBC. Uh, so that was falling over. It was like a broken marriage. I'm sure you know what it's like when a band breaks up. It's quite traumatic, <laughs> mm. especially when you put so much work into it. Um, so Lou goes off to America and comes back with an album deal to do an album because 20th Century were relaunching their label over there and they thought that uh, an album with London Symphony doing rock classics like Wishing Well and I did a duet with Speedy Keen of Something in the Air. And uh, the following year, Lou died. So he passed away and the rights to that album went to me. Now, I've sat on that for years and years and years and I've remastered it for CD, which I did a few years back. And I've also added the live recording from uh, Tommy, which is uh, Eyesight to the Blind. Oh. And uh, and I've put on, which was only on the B side of the single, Layla Part 2. And I've got rid of the two MRO tracks. One of them was Drift Away. Are you going to call and it the same both, thing? Are you going to call it Prestidigitation? Yeah, because yeah. it has to stay true to it. Yeah. The, the, this album is not Ronnie Charles and the London Symphony Orchestra. <laughs> it's, it's a thing. And... It's been reformatted to what Will Malone and I and Lou originally wanted to do before the Americans interfered with it, which was like a tubular bells or a, it was like it was designed for that time, 75, 76. It was sort of the next step after Tommy and really the arrangements and Will Malone had really honed it by then. It's, uh, it, uh, it was something I was always quite proud of, even though it didn't, didn't really cut through in the era of uh, punk and disco, which is when it when it came out in seventy six.
an amazing version of uh, Layla and uh, also the oh, cracking rock song, uh, Wishing Well, the, uh, the old free song, Ronnie Charles. Great singer. Uh, now, that, uh, that brings to a close this edition of The Life of Brian. Now, we'll have the next part of the Sean Kelly interview in the next edition and also uh, coming soon. Philip Brady will be talking oh, to yes. us. One of the great icons of uh, the Australian entertainment industry. Gary Twin um, from Supernaut. He's interesting, isn't he? Uh, oh, Gary. Yeah. He's, uh, he's, um, he's done a lot more with his life than I realised. Yeah, having a fine time in LA. He's, uh, he's, he's had COVID, so he's had a couple of weeks off. But if you follow me on Facebook or the social media platforms, you'll see that he's, his bands are back up and playing again at his pub, so he's, uh, he's enjoying life. So, Do you know how he caught COVID? Uh, no. At that orgy with Ronnie Charles and Pete Townsend. <laughs> Just things went crazy that night. <laughs> our thanks to our good friends at Murcotts. That's murcotts.edu.au 1300 And a gift certificate to get one of those advanced driving, defence driving courses. It's all about making you safer on the roads, and they're the people to talk to to do it. They certainly are. And well uh, done, Keith. You've got a, a, a big bevy of gigs coming up in the uh, in the future, Brian? Uh, yes, I've got my um, first gig with my Queensland bands coming up on the 14th. And um, Ooh, where are you debuting that? Oh, we're just doing a little warm up gig in this little pub because we just want to get the bugs out of it yet. Because yep. what we're trying is quite ambitious. So we're doing a couple of warm up gigs and then we'll get that right. And then we'll. Are you excited by that? Because that's kind of the first new kind of venture in, into that area that you've done for a while. I, I love it because, you know, I don't just have to play 80s songs, which is great. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we're doing a lot of songs that I sort of picked that I liked, but so I don't know whether a band's going to be able to play this. But um, to my surprise, uh, the band's great and, um, you know, it's I get to play guitar a bit and Ooh. it's really rocking and, uh, and it's funny and it's different. We're doing stuff that nobody else is doing. So is there is there a couple of songs exciting. is there a couple of songs that you're doing that you've been hanging out to do that you can you'll share with us? Um I like How You Like Me Now by the Heavy, which most people probably off the top of their head don't know it. But as soon as you hear it you go, Oh yeah, I've seen that in about fifteen movies. Oh okay. Um, but it's just a, a really, really cool song. And then I'm playing a couple of songs that I wrote that I've never played live, so that's really exciting for me. And doing the old X-Men's version of Sounds of Silence, which is fantastic and just nice to be in a band that's pretty tough. Okay. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah, I'm really excited about it. Keep us us updated on that. But uh, until the next time, this has been The Life of Brian, dot, 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 Mannix, that is. Take care. What a life it is. (laughs) 